My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, this is John Hemminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, the ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. How do you handle calamity? In the Bible passage Pastor Jones will examine this morning, Jesus and his disciples were about to go through some horrific circumstances, including the arrest of Christ, his followers' abandonment of him, and ultimately our Lord's crucifixion. Yet on the very brink of these life-changing events, Jesus was sharing four great promises with his scared but loyal followers. Those promises have great import for you and I today. So I hope you'll listen as our pastor teaches on the subject, Four Great Promises for Troubled Times. Good morning. This is Pastor Lane Jones from Calkins Baptist Church. I came across an interesting story a short time ago. It concerned two men who served together in the U.S. Army in World War II. Harold Huggins from Albany, Illinois, was a veteran of 10 major campaigns, including the Battle of Anzio in Italy. Huggins had a close friend named Mac McLean, who was uh, from Marysville, California. Mac told his friend Harold that he did not think he was going to survive, and he felt so strongly about this that he gave Harold some personal mementos, a belt, some photos, etc. He told Harold that if he did not make it out alive, Harold should should give these items to Mac's sister and to give her a kiss for him. Unfortunately, Mac McLean's fears were fulfilled as he was killed in action during an artillery barrage. Due to the promise between them, Harold carried Mac's personal items with him throughout the rest of his time in Europe and back with him to the U.S. However, upon returning home, Harold could not locate Mac's sister. Now, let's keep in mind, this is early or uh, mid-1940s, and uh, no internet, no um, searches like that that we could do today. So, Before he could find her, she had married and changed her last name, and although Harold tried several times, he never found out who Mac's sister was or where she might be living. Never, that is, until 57 years later. Harold's daughter, thinking again about her father's unfulfilled promise, tried emailing uh, various veterans groups in hopes about finding uh, Mac's relatives. The plan worked. Mac's sister was located. Now Harold had one more assignment, so he traveled to Mac's hometown to meet with Mac's sister, Grace. We have hoped and prayed that we would meet somebody that would tell us about Mac, Grace said. So on Thursday, August 2, 2001, at the spot where Mac's name was engraved in a marble monument in his hometown, Harold Huggins kept his 57-year-old promise to his buddy Mac. Harold handed Grace the mementos from his friend, told her some stories about their time together, and gave her the kiss on behalf of her brother that he had promised to give. It took a while, but the promise made between two army soldiers was finally kept. Now, for over a year on this program, we've been examining the messages that Jesus Christ personally gave as are recorded in the Bible. For the next, for the last few weeks, we have been dealing with our Lord's last message before his crucifixion, one specifically given to his 11 loyal disciples that is commonly called the Upper Room Discourse. In case you are new to this broadcast, let me briefly bring you up to date as to what's going on uh, right around this time that Jesus is giving this uh, last message to his disciples before his crucifixion. Um, the time in Jesus' life would be the night where some uh, Jewish people would be uh, celebrate the Passover. I say some, 
because uh, John MacArthur cites, cites both Josephus and the Mishnah, which is the oldest collection of Jewish oral traditions, as stating that the Jewish people from northern I- section of Israel, including Galilee, calculated their days like we do, that is, morning to morning, while Jews who lived around Jerusalem calculated their days from sunset to sunset. These two different methods of calculating the day led Israelite northerners to celebrate the Passover a day earlier than their southern brethren. Actually, this was helpful because it kept the volume down at the temple during this most popular holiday and explains an apparent contradiction that Jesus celebrated the Passover and yet was crucified on Passover. Anyway, the night uh, of his betrayal by Judas uh, is what is is when this is taking place. Uh, Judas actually has just left to uh, go to the authorities to, to whom he's going to betray the Lord, and Jesus is left now with eleven loyal disciples when this last message is given. It's also the night, obviously, before Christ's crucifixion, uh, because the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, where Jesus would be arrested, is only literally minutes or maybe um, an hour or so away. Uh, time in the life of the disciples is is a time of fear that Jesus was going to die and leave them. Uh, it was also a fear of religious leaders of the nation who hated Christ and, and hated them because they associated with Jesus. Uh, of course, they've just uh, seen Judas identified as a fake, which would have been devastating, I'm sure, to them as well. And to, uh, to leave, they don't know what he's doing yet, but uh, but they will soon learn that he was uh, actually betraying the Lord uh, on that very evening. And all of them have been told that they were going to fail to be loyal to Jesus. Jesus himself told them that. And, of course, they're having a hard time dealing with that information as well. And what about the spiritual temperature of the disciples at this point? Well, on the way to this event, uh, the disciples were once again arguing over who would be the greatest in Christ's kingdom. Um, So there's a lot of selfishness and pride still going on between them. After arriving in the upper room, no one took the initiative to wash the feet of the others, which was, a, uh, again, it was a very menial servant type of task. And Jesus, again, would show them an example of humble service when he did that to each one of them, washed their feet. Peter has uh, refused to believe Jesus when the Lord predicted that he would deny him three times before daybreak. And uh, Peter, again, is, is, is very much trying to deny that. And the other disciples have followed Peter's lead in saying that they would never deny Christ, though Christ also predicted that they would abandon him. So can you sympathize with these men? Have you ever been fearful, confused, and spiritually weak all at the same time? Well, that's where these men were. Uh, and what would you need at a time like that? Would you need someone to say, "Well, boy, you, you, you're, um, you know, you're prideful and you're and you're fearful and you're you need to snap out of it"? Well, I don't know if that'd be too helpful. I think they needed encouragement. And if you were in their place, how could you find encouragement? Because you're on the, the really the eve of two of your greatest fears about to come true. You're going to fail to stand with Jesus when he's arrested. You're actually going to run from him, and he's going to die. So if you want to, to find some comfort in God during such a time of crisis as this, um, let me give you three things that, that will come to play um, over this, uh, this discourse that Jesus is going to give them. First of all, they're going to see God's promises. And that's where we're going to focus today. I'm going to share with you four promises of God that are unshakable for the Christian. 
Then we, uh, and we'll, that's what we'll focus on. But also, they're going to need to see Christ's person. That will take some time. It won't be till his resurrection that they really understand and are rock solid on the fact that Jesus is not only the promised Messiah, but he, in fact, is God in the flesh. They're going to need to see Christ's person to, to really snap out of this. And, and thirdly, they're going to need to see God's purpose. The fact that especially... Um, uh, God has something for them to do. He, he, it's not an accident that they have followed Jesus for this time, and God is going to use them for the rest of their lives as a result. So God's promises, God's person, and God's purpose. But let's focus in on those promises that we can hang on to in times when we would be tempted very much to despair. Well, the first promise that Jesus is going to give is the promise of eternal life in heaven. Now, in in each of these four promises, I'm going to talk about two things um, primarily that will help us kind of outline them. The first one is a command to obey, or I would call it a qualification, okay? So it's a command to qualify for the promise. And then we also want to look at what the promise itself involves. So let's start with John chapter 14 and verse 1, as Jesus is talking to these scared and spiritually um, weak and uh, very much confused disciples who have followed him loyally, love him uh, dearly, and really do not understand what's going on, and especially what's about to happen. And the first words in John 14 that Jesus says to these men, he's been talking to them before this, but what he says to them now is this, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, that gives us an idea of what this command is to qualify for the promises he's going to give. He's saying, you believe in God already. You already believe. And then there's no atheists in the group. They, they believe that God exists. And they believe the God of the Bible exists. But he says, now you need to believe in me like that. And so I, I, I do not view Jesus' words, let not your heart be troubled, as a command as much as it is an encouragement. But what is the command? He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. So what are you to believe about Jesus? You are to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, why do I say that? I'm going to skip down a couple verses to verse 4. He says, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now, Thomas, I think, expresses what a lot of the other guys are thinking. In verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Now, I've skipped verse 2 and 3 for a purpose. We're going to come back to them. That's what the promise actually involves. But but Jesus has been talking about heaven. I'll just, uh, just kind of clue you in on that. They don't know that. They haven't figured that out. And so Jesus is saying, where I'm going, you know, and then the way you know. And Thomas is saying, Lord, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going. And so how are we ever going to find you again? And then Jesus makes an answer that has rung down through history ever since. He says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, Jesus in this statement is saying something that only God could say about himself. He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, think on those statements. The way where? He's talking about the way to heaven. I am the truth. He's saying truth revolves around me. 
and he's saying life revolves around me. Now, that's a very interesting statement in light of something that he's going to pray just a short time later. Listen to John 17. It's in the same um, message, but John 17 and verse 3, he's actually praying to God at this point, and listen to what he says. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, Jesus speaking to God the Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He's saying eternal life is wrapped up in knowing the one true God and his Son. Now, again, an angel can't make that claim. No other being in the universe could make that claim unless Jesus himself is God. Now, if we missed it there, I'm going to come back to John 14 again, and I'm picking up at verse 7 and reading down to verse 11, and you're going to find that Jesus is actually claiming to be the visual representation of God on earth. Listen to what, is, what the exchange that goes on here. John 17, uh, John 14, excuse me, verse 7. If you had known me, speaking now to his disciples again, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. He said, you've been talking about the Father, you're talking about yourself, show us God the Father, and, and, and we'll be able to believe all this. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet have you not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. What Jesus is claiming here is that he is the visual representation of God on earth. He's claiming to be God, not God the Father. It's a separate person, but he is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father, because I am the visible representation of God on earth. I am God in human flesh. What a statement. So what's the command to qualify for this promise that's coming? Well, it is simply to believe that that Jesus is the Son of God, and, 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 and again, the physical representation of God on earth, which means he is, is, is very God himself, and and to have your faith in him. Now, what is then, what are the promises that come from a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Well, that's back up in verse 2 and 3. So I'm going to start with verse 1 again just to give you the context, and then I'm going to read the promises. Jesus again says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so... I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now this promise then involves, first of all, the fact that Christ said he's preparing a place for us. If you belong to Jesus, if you have accepted him as your Lord and Savior, and you are you are one of his children, you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is saying, I am preparing a place for you. Now, where is this place? It's obviously in heaven. He calls it my Father's house. Not only did he say he's preparing a place for us, but he said, I will come again, which means he is going to return for us. 
He said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. So that's where Christians, down through the ages, have looked forward to the return of Christ. Now, some of us will, matter of fact, that all of us who, who, not us, I haven't died yet, but all who have died in Christ, all who have accepted Jesus as Savior and have died up to this point, from the disciples right down through, have Christ has come for them and brought them to heaven through death. But what he's really talking about, I believe here, is his return for his children in what we commonly call the rapture. He said, I will I will come again and receive you to myself. Now, there's a third promise, that Christ preparing us a place, he's returning for us, and then he says that where I am, there you may be also. And that promise is that we will live with Christ forever. How many Christians hang on to this promise when they face one of the scariest times in life, and that is the time to die? How many times those of us who are living hang on to this promise when we are dealing with loved ones who have gone before us, who, have, who are Christians as well? I was just in a uh, preaching a, a funeral service this uh, past week, actually today as I'm recording this, and um, did not know the, the person very well. But I will tell you this, that that I could say that for every person that has accepted Christ, uh, we have this promise. We sorrow, yes, but we don't sorrow like those that have no hope, the Scripture says. What that means is, is, is when, we, uh, when we know Christ and our loved one who died has known Christ and was, had a relationship with him, it is not goodbye forever. It literally is, I will see you later. So when I stood at my grandfather's uh, uh, casket, um, a grandfather on my dad's side, who was who was a godly man who loved the Lord and 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 served Him throughout his life, it really was. I will see you later. I loved him. Uh, God obviously had His time for him and took him away, but I will see you later. And that is such a different ment- and Christ- mentality. And Christians have had that privilege of looking forward not only to be with Christ ourselves, but looking forward to be with those others who've gone before us who were uh, believers as well. We've had the joy, uh, although in sorrow, because we're going to miss that person while they're gone. Uh, we have the we have the peace and we have the joy of knowing that it's not goodbye forever. It is, I will see you later. Just this past week, my son and uh, uh, his girlfriend came up to visit us. And we had some wonderful uh, times of fellowship with them and uh, helped us out with uh, some chores around the house as well as just uh, great times together. And um, uh, both of them live, they don't live together, they live separately, but both of them, um, uh, have to, uh, they're traveling together back to each other's uh, houses. And so uh, we had to say goodbye. Uh, but it was not goodbye forever. Uh, we look forward to seeing them again. So it really was, I'll see you later. And we're very grateful for the fact that we look forward again to seeing them uh, again. And if if in some um, uh, providence of God, the, they uh, somehow we died or they died, again, it is not goodbye forever. It is, I will see you later. Do you have that joy and that uh, knowledge in your heart and mind and, and deep within your soul. 
We call it sometimes in Christian circles the blessed hope. But when we use the word hope there in a biblical sense, it's not that, oh boy, I hope it's not going to rain today. It's not a, a question. It is what we call a confident expectation. And the idea that we are expecting to see our loved one again. And we um, are looking forward to that day of reunion with the Lord in heaven. And of course, the greatest reunion at all of all is to be with our Savior. So as Jesus is talking to these scared and confused and, and um, just uh, troubled men, one of the first things that he t- deals with them is this promise of eternal life in heaven. Now, there's another great promise as well. And that is great purposes from God. God is, is going to show these men through Christ. He's going to show them that the Lord, life is not going to end when Jesus dies. God has something for them to do. Now, again, some of you may have lost a, a, a close friend or uh, maybe a, a spouse, or you've lost a child, or you, you've lost uh, someone that you love dearly. And sometimes um, I, I was just talking to someone actually today um, at the at the funeral. They were talking to to me about a, another event that had happened in this person's life—a fire—and and and she was thanking me and our church family for our for our prayers for them. And we did pray in the early days after the fire. But the reality was this, and I and I shared this with her. I I, I said, you know, in the fire that happened about a year ago, as I recall, we stopped and we prayed for you during um, those few days after the fire. But the reality is that um, we went back to our own lives. That's the way it works. And and this lady and and her little circle, her little family, they had to deal with it going forward. Uh, and there's so, it's, and those of you that have lost close loved ones, you know what I'm talking about, where, where, you have friends come around and and people think of you in the in the early days at least there are are often people there to minister to you but eventually those people go back to living their own lives and there you are going on without that loved one where do you go from here uh what do you do when you when you lost lost your spouse and and quite honestly no one is remembering that this was the day that you met the anniversary of the day you met or this was your wedding anniversary, or this was the birthday of your departed loved one. No, nobody else seems to remember those things. And you remember, or, or you're home, and, and it's been days or weeks, maybe even months, since someone uh, came around and, 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 and brought any kind of comfort to you concerning the loss of a loved one. Where do you go from there? Well, one of the things that Jesus is going to point out, another promise from him, is, hey, fellas, God has a great purpose for your lives to come. You're not on hold the rest of your lives. He's in all probability were young men. Um, I can't give you an age, but but if you've I've seen many paintings with the disciples, and I've, I've often used uh, paintings and such as illustrations in, in, in my uh, church for PowerPoint. Uh, many times the... the um, the painters, not knowing, would 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 portray the disciples as people like look like in their forties or fifties or so. I don't believe they were. I think they were much younger than that. Um, John will seem to be writing his uh, book of Revelation uh, somewhere around the uh, around eighty five to ninety A.D., which would be about sixty years or so uh, after uh, Christ was on earth. 
And so he probably was a, a very young man. As a matter of fact, he probably was the youngest of the group. But, but if he's in his late teens or 20s, and the other ones are, are right around in that general area, you can see these are young men. And, and what the Lord is telling them is, look, fellas, I, I've got something for you to do. Yes, you're going to fail me. You're going to walk away from me. Peter's going to deny that he even knows me three times. I've still got something for you to do. So again, well, let's look at the commands to qualify, and let's look at the promise itself. I'm going to read John 14, verse 12 to 15. It says this, Jesus speaking again, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these uh, he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, the promise uh, of purpose from God. What was? What is the? First of all, let's look at the uh, at the at what you have to do to qualify for this promise of, of great purpose from God. And in verse twelve, it w- it goes right back to a genuine faith in Christ. Notice how he puts it. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me. So a genuine faith in Christ is the qualification, one of the qualifications, to to qualify for this great promise of purpose in your life. Well, what's the other one? Well, right at, at verse 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And obedience to God's commands really is a characteristic of a true believer, and it also is the fruit of genuine love. Now, um, uh, I could say that I love my wife, and I do. I love her very much. But if every time she asks me to do something, I snort and despise it and and say, no, I'm not going to do it, uh, she would rightfully have every reason to to question my love. Now, some of the things she asked me to do, if you're are, just joining uh, us, you're listening to, to the Beacon of Hope but that broadcast, doesn't show a lot of love ministry when of she says, Hey, uh, Lane, how about now, we go out to, to eat tonight? Message. That doesn't show a lot of love for her to say, Oh, yeah, that I'll, I'll go out to eat with you. I'll, 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 um, I'll go to a restaurant. I enjoy that. But when she says to me something like, Lane, go out and uh, uh, you know trim the bank or, or uh, help me with... Um, with some food preparation for some people that are coming, that may not be something that I enjoy quite so much. And showing my love for her by trying to follow her wishes is a demonstration of, of true love. And actually, by the way, it builds true love for those of you that are married. It, when, when you choose not to do what you want to do, but to do what is best for your spouse, that's really what love is all about. Love is not an emotion that just goes up and down. Uh, so many people are bound by that lie. Love comes down to a choice to put the other person's uh, benefit and, and their well-being ahead of your own. So, for instance, my wife has a, um, uh, a once a month, she has a special time of uh, Bible study and prayer with the young ladies of our church. And uh, in order to do that, uh, they have a breakfast on Saturday. It takes a, a, really the early part of the morning, Saturday all the way through uh, noon or so, depending on how long they want to stay and talk and chat. And and uh, because she wants the ladies to be able to come, she makes more than enough food and great food, really does, does a great job, very creative, uh, all kinds of different breakfast dishes. And uh, she makes more than enough so the ladies can take them back if they're married to their husbands and their husbands won't be irritated with them for going. So she's got a little uh, method to her madness. Well, that what that involves then 
is from Friday night. Uh, we're on the, I'm on the hot seat with her. I'm not a chef, don't claim to be one, but uh, I am uh, next door trying to cut up vegetables or uh, or peel, uh, uh, what are they, clementines or chopped pineapple or whatever she needs done. I'm the, I'm the, I can do the dumb stuff. So I can chop the stuff. I can uh, grate the cheese if what's necessary. I can fry the bacon. I can wash the dishes. Now, it's not like uh, this is something that I just crave doing. Although I will tell you this, the longer I've done it, the fellowship that we have, the, the things we can do together, um, it's it gets more and more meaningful and quite a bit more enjoyable for me. And so we're, what am I doing? I'm showing that she matters to me by by obeying her wishes, by trying to help her out on, on um, her her effort to be a blessing to the young ladies of our church. Jesus is saying, when you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. You're going to follow my words. You're not going to spit on my word. You're not going to uh, say, God, I don't care what you want me to do. I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, I don't care if you want me, if you don't want me to live with my girlfriend, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I don't care if you want me to be uh, honest in my business. I'm going to, uh, you know, cheat others and lie to get ahead. That's not that's not a, a Christian that loves God at all. What Jesus is saying is, if you um, and and you find this again as a qualification for this pro- next promise, that you need, fellas, because you know me, you qualify for this promise, and because you are you are showing obedience to my commands, you're showing that you love me. So what is this promise? It's astounding when you think about it. I read it. Let's, let me, let me read to you again. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now, we can stand back and say, now hold on, Pastor Lane. Jesus raised people from the dead. Uh, Jesus uh, caused lepers to go away completely healed. Uh, Jesus uh, touched blind men's eyes, and they and they saw. Are you are you saying that you have the ability to do that? Um, no, I I I am not saying I have the ability to do those kind of miracles. I I will say this: that I do not uh, uh, believe that so much of what uh, the the faith healing and all of those type of things is legit. I think that many of these uh, uh, people, unfortunately, are scams. And they're um, they're lying to people, uh, telling everybody that they're just supposed to be healed. That that they're focusing in on their um, their temporal well being instead of worrying about people's eternal souls. But I will submit to you that the greatest miracles that Christ uh, performs, whether in His generation or our generation, is not the physical healing of uh, a leper or a blind man or even giving someone physical life again. The biggest miracle, and I know this sounds crazy to you, but it's the truth. The biggest miracle is the salvation of a soul. The fact that God can take selfish, proud people like ourselves, people who are bound by our sin, and release us and forgive us for our sins is astounding. It is it is a miracle. There are, there are many people, you can get people to, say, pray a prayer. You can get someone to walk an aisle. You can get people to make um, professions of what we call a profession of faith. 
and I, not, without ma manipulation. Um, and of course, there are there are people that will try to manipulate them into doing such things. But but even without manipulation, you can get people to to again pray a prayer of of of, of uh, what we call a sinner's prayer. But for someone to truly be convinced in his or her heart that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, and to truly come to him by faith and accept him as Savior and Lord by faith and really, really mean that decision, I will tell you, it is a miracle of God. I was just a, a, a preaching at this funeral uh, on Jesus' parable of the sower, and he was talking about how uh, there are People who are like the, the hard soil, as the person goes out to sow, when I'm talking about sowing, I'm talking about broadcasting seed. When you, when a, in the ancient days, a person would go out and take a bag full of seed and they would throw it with their hands in different locations to try to get a crop. Of course, they'd plow a little bit first. And, but as a person would be doing that, you're, it's not a perfect shot. And so some, some seed would fall on what Jesus describes as a hard ground or a path. And, of course, that seed's not going to penetrate. The birds are going to grab that quickly. Um, that's the illustration of a person with a hard heart. What is also interesting is he talked about seed falling on a, uh, a, a shallow soil. We have a lot of it in our right around our house where the the um, uh, there's a lot of either bedrock or shale uh, right underneath the surface and particularly right behind our church where we used to have a, a baseball field, that, that uh, ground was very shallow. And so you could get some grass to grow on it, uh, but if, if you got a, a number of days without rain, uh, that grass would be burned. And plus, if you tried to grow anything, like say corn, and that's where Jesus' illustration is, or, or some other type of, of, of grain, um, that, that seed may come up quickly because there's not much soil there. And Jesus described that as having taking place. But the reality is that will burn off because it can't, there's no root system. There's no way for that root to get those roots to go anywhere because they're, they're going into solid rock. And so Jesus said, there are people like that. And those people are not converted. They make a quick decision. They, they, they make an emotional decision. But they really didn't understand the gospel. And maybe some of you are in that spot where you could look back years ago and you made some kind of, you walked an aisle, you prayed a prayer, uh, but your life hasn't changed. Uh, you're not living for God and you never really have. You maybe for a little while, you acted like a Christian, but how Jesus described it is when persecution or some kind of opposition arises, then, then, then you're offended and you move on to live life for yourself. That's not genuine conversion. So then he describes the third type of person. That is, the, the, the seed falls in, a, in an area where there's a lot of weeds called thorny ground, where there's a lot of thorns there. And, and, and some of you know what that's like. Um, and so the weeds are, go, grow around that seed and, and it choke out the sunlight, choke out the nutrition, and, and the seed never brings forth anything in that scenario as well. That's another example of a person who acted like a Christian for a while. The, 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 actually, the seed is, is a picture of the Word of God, and, and there, there's a sprout there that looks like there's, they're going somewhere. And yet, at some point, um, really, they're showing that they're not genuinely converted because they choose to live, as Jesus described it, for the, uh, for the cares and riches of the world. They choke out the seed. Now, the cares are, are like your worries, your concerns. So here's a person, maybe you were raised in church. And yeah, you acted like you believed it. Maybe you thought you did. But as you got older, maybe in high school, junior high, could have been in college, could have been after that. 
you kind of evaluated things and it's like, you know, I don't think I'm going to get what I want from life by being a Christian. I think I need to just kind of go my own way, chart my own course, do my own thing. And what you're showing is you really didn't believe. You're just going out to living for yourself. And, and Jesus said the thorns have come up. They're choking the seed, and the, the, the plant now, and there's no fruit to perfection. That again is a person who was not genuinely converted. Now, he gives an example of the, of, the, of the seed that falls on the good ground, but it not only produces a plant, it produces a harvest. And that is the, the only one of the, of, the, of the soils that is expressing genuine conversion. And I will tell you again that there are many people who have walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, um, gone to church faithfully over the years, but ultimately they are just like those different types of soils. They are not truly converted. It is a miracle of God when someone comes and genuinely accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You say, well, that Pastor, you're describing a lot of people then that claim to be Christians that aren't. Yeah, that's exactly right. Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 7. He said, enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Yes, genuine conversion is, is more rare than we think, and it is always a miracle of God when God, is a, God convince, convinces a sinner, not only that he's real, but you need to turn from your sin to me and accept Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for your forgiveness. So Jesus is saying, you're going to do greater works than I did. And he mentions something else. And, and, and uh, well, let me just back up for one second and tell you that as you look then across church history, and we've noticed what the church has done, it started at, at, with just a handful of people after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Matter of fact, there was 120 that were gathered in a, in a prayer meeting Sure, there were more believers than that, but but they were gathered specifically to pray, and that's when um, the the Holy Spirit came upon the, these people, and the the gospel began to explode across the earth. And so, there are many people that would have considered themselves followers in Jesus' day, but were just like those three soils that were duds. And so, to today, the miracle is of the millions of people who have been converted, whose lives have changed. And you and I can be a part of that. If we've accepted Christ, the reality is we should be bearing fruit. There's the fruit of a changed life, and there's also the fruit of new life for other people who come in contact with us and find Christ as a result of our life and testimony. And, and if you claim to be a Christian, are you causing other people are you sharing the gospel with other people? Are you helping other people to find Jesus? That's a characteristic of a true believer, a person that is sharing his faith. Now, you may not be able to point to anybody specifically that you prayed with necessarily, but but people should be able to uh, see in your life a difference, and you should be being used of God to call other people to Christ. Jesus said, greater works than I did, you're going to do. And you look across church history, and what was just a, a handful, maybe hundreds or, or, or a few thousand believers in Jesus' day when he dies on the cross, has become millions of believers today. And that is being fulfilled even still to this generation. And then he mentions this. He says, that whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask anything in my name, 
I will do it. And this promise, uh, again, is not only greater works than Christ did while he was on earth, but tremendous power in prayer. Now you say anything you want. It, uh, let's let's be uh, careful here because Jesus is not giving us a blank check for our own um, our just our own whims and foolish desires. I'm not saying, and Jesus and I think his disciples are clear on this as he's talking to them. He's not saying you can ask you know for uh, multiplied millions of dollars or that you'd have great fame, or you could become the emperor of Rome. Uh, th- those things really, quite honestly, don't appeal to a true follower of Jesus. You, um, they really don't. It's not like we want to be wealthy. I would a whole lot rather that God do a great work in my family's lives, my children's lives, my uh, the people uh, I love around me, my church family, than I would have a million dollars. And and um, for instance, but it would say this: that when you have a legitimate need as a child of God, and you're not playing around, this is something that you absolutely you do have a need. You can trust that God will meet those needs according to again His plan for your life. Now, right now, something my wife and I are praying about. Um, uh, she's got a, um, a a different teaching job, and so we're we're praying about a different vehicle. We've got. Uh, one vehicle each, and we need that because um, we go different directions. She to her work um, as teach as a teacher, and and myself to the work of the ministry. So you never know where I'm going. So the all right, we we need two different vehicles. Well, one of our vehicles is getting a little bit where we're concerned about its reliability. So what are we doing? We're praying about it now. Are we praying for you know a, an expensive? Uh, no, we really don't care about that type of thing. We're just praying for something reliable. Something that that uh, uh, my wife would uh, would be able to drive, or I'd be able to drive. However, that uh, shakes out. We're just praying for something that would meet our needs, and really, we'll be very happy as God provides that. Now, could the Lord say, "Well, no, I want you to stay with the older vehicle"? Um, I'm, I'm absolutely could, and that's fine. But I know this: that I can pray, and I only want what God wants on the situation. I want I want the Lord's will to be done. And yes, I have a desire, but I want the Lord's will to be done. And so as we pray, we just trust that God will lead us. And you find it over and over and over again. Something even more important to me than than um, a, a reliable vehicle is help when people come uh, for counseling. Uh, so many times you encounter situations that, quite frankly, are out of my league. They're out of my uh, um, um personal knowledge and experience, and what do you do to help this person that comes to you? I'll tell you what I I do as a matter of uh, necessity, and that is when someone begins to share, or maybe just after they've shared their burden with me, you stop and you pray with them, and I'm asking God, God, give me wisdom on how to help this person. Help me to know what to say. And as we pray, God gave a promise that if we lack wisdom, we can ask. And and I've just seen that answered over and over and over again. Uh, so the Lord promised us, look, if you know me and you are loving me and trying to keep my commandments, here's what I have for you. I have a purpose for your life. You're going to actually end up doing greater works than I did. And as a church collectively, I'm talking about the the, the church down through the centuries. That is exactly what's happening in the process going still forward today and also 
this promise of tremendous power in prayer. We have a privilege to be part of this. Now, there's a third promise he gives to the disciples, and that's the promise of the eternal presence of the Holy Spirit. So the first one was heaven. The second one is purpose for your life. And that purpose is even greater works than Christ did and tremendous power in prayer. And now this third promise is the eternal presence of the Holy Spirit. It starts out in verse 16. And it says this, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. Now think about this. Jesus says, this is the night before his crucifixion. He's saying, shortly I'm, I'm, I'm going to be gone. and The world's not going to see me anymore. But you will see me, because and because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. I'm going to stop there for just a second and just notice this promise of the helper is the promise of not just the Holy Spirit being with us, around us, he'll be in us. And this is a reality for every true child of God today, that when you come to Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells God's child. And um, so you say, wow, what a, what, a, what a promise. Well, let's keep reading because there's a little more conversation here. Uh, Judas, not Iscariot, there, another uh, man who um, was one of Jesus' disciples who also had a name, uh, Judas, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So the obedient life of the Christian doesn't mean a perfect life, but the fact of wanting to serve the Lord and trying to serve the Lord, and that being your general life tenor, uh, that is evidence of genuine salvation. It's not Works is not salvation, but the works are evidence of genuine salvation. Jesus goes on, These things have I spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. So this promise is the eternal presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the command to qualify? What do I have to do to qualify for the Holy Spirit? Uh, The bottom line is you simply have to be a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. Because he said back in verse 16 and 17 that, and, and to his disciples, I am going to send you the Holy Spirit, the Helper. So, Again, it's just to know Christ as your Savior. Now, what's the blessing behind this promise? Well, we get the Holy Spirit's assurance about who Jesus is, about your very salvation. He says, the Helper's going to come. I'm not going to leave you like an orphan. He's saying that you will know that I'm in the Father. He's saying that the Holy Spirit's going to assure you, and he's also going to enable you. He's going to enable you to obey the Lord. He's going to enable you to have constant fellowship with God. 
and he's going to enable the true believer to remember what God has taught you. Now, that was unique. There's a unique part of this in that the disciples, that's how they were able to write scripture, was the Holy Spirit's enablement to remember the different things that had happened in them. But it also has meaning to us today. Um, uh, I I memorize scripture. I I try to make that a a normal part of my my, uh, spiritual discipline. And so, um, you know, every uh, I, I'm trying to be at that every single day, memorizing scripture. Well, um, if if you told if you asked me, okay, what was the scripture that you memorized two months ago? I may or may not struggle with it, depending on. Uh, but there's many times when when the verses I've memorized in the past, um, I I cannot just bring back to to memory. But I have found this that when I'm in a situation where I need those verses. It's astounding how God brings them back and gives me the ability um, through whatever means to find where that scripture is at. Um, and and so God does help us. And you'll find, I found this so many times with Christians, that God gives them the, the words to say, gives them even the scripture passages or, or, or something they may not remember it exactly perfectly, but they remember the gist of it um, at a critical time, that you find is 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 part of the help of the Holy Spirit. So he 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 gives us um, the uh, the assurance about Christ and about our salvation. The Holy Spirit enables us to obey the Lord, to have constant fellowship with God, and to remember even what God has taught us. That brings us to the last of the four promises. So the first one is heaven. The second one is purpose. The third one is the uh, indwelling eternal presence of the Holy Spirit, and the fourth one is this peace of Christ. I started to read about it. In verse 27, and let me read it to you again. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. And with that, the disciples were headed with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now let's, um, and by the way, he's going to still talk to them on the way, and we'll study that, Lord willing, even next week. What's this promise of the peace of Christ? Well, the command to qualify, again, is to be a true child of God. He says, not as the world gives do I give to you. So I'm giving you a peace that's different than those that don't know Christ experience. And what, what I mean by that is, when the world thinks of peace, we think of circumstances, we think of a beautiful lake and maybe maybe a fishing pole and the perfect weather and all things that depend upon circumstances. When God is giving his peace, when Christ is giving his peace, he's talking about an, etern- an internal rest in your soul that can be completely independent of your circumstances. It's being able, though you're, though you're weeping at the graveside of a loved one, to be able in your heart of hearts to have rest in your soul because you say, you know what, I miss them dreadfully, I miss them. But I know God is with me here and God is with them there. That they're with the Lord, they're safe, and I know God is with me now. That's what I'm talking about. This 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 peace, this rest in your soul that goes beyond 
goes beyond um, circumstances. It, it, what is the command to qualify? Well, you have to be a true child of God, and you also need to trust God's plan. You need to trust that God uh, will take care of you. And uh, Christ's example uh, would would um, uh, would even be, he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be um, crucified. And yet he's saying, and, and when he talks about the God of this world is coming, he's talking about Satan. And if you think about it, I think most of us understand that the um, um, that so much of what happens on our planet is not God's handiwork; it's Satan's plan, handiwork. I'm talking about governments and and decisions that are that are often so wicked and so wrong. And so the Lord is in control, um, even as Jesus is about to face the greatest injustices and humiliations um, of of not only his earthly life but really that has been perpetrated upon an innocent human being because Christ had never sinned. And he's about to go through that, and yet he's telling them about this peace that he's giving to them that goes beyond human understanding. Now, um, the the blessing then is God is, is having rest in your soul, that God is in control of every situation, and he has a sovereign plan for his people and his glory. So do you have these four blessings do you have the promise of eternal life in heaven? That, that you know what, whatever happens on this earth, I am thankful I'm going to be with the Lord one day. Do you have a promise from God resting in your soul that I, he has purpose for me? That's why he's left me here. I have something to do for him. Do you have um, in your soul the, the promise of the eternal presence of the Holy Spirit and the reality of that fact? that he's walking with you through life, and are you experiencing the peace of Christ that goes beyond understanding and beyond your circumstances? Because amid failure, confusion, fear, Christ is giving these wonderful promises. And the qualifications for these promises really revolve around one basic thing, your relationship with Christ. If you're not saved, you don't have these promises. And if you do not have a personal relationship with God, you need one. Christ died to secure that for you. If you will repent and believe, you can have these same four promises applied to your life. And if you do have a personal relationship with Christ, I know you enjoy these things and you are experiencing these wonderful promises of God. Father, bless as folks have heard this message. May you open their hearts to realize the reality of the blessing of serving thee. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, if you have a spiritual need and would like to interact with someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. For those who can't attend in person, we live stream many of our services. You can access them on our Facebook page by searching for Calkins Baptist Church. We also have a podcast that contains the recordings for this entire series. The best way for you to access that resource is to follow the Radio Bold icon that we have pinned near the top of our Facebook page. Also, several months back, we began uploading videos of our services to YouTube, so if you don't have Facebook and would like to view a message, you can search for Calkins Baptist Church on YouTube, and you'll find the beginning of our presence there. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. For me. Stay my fast.